Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. So good to see you. As I said in the last service, there's perhaps no greater foretaste of what we're going to experience for all eternity than when God's people lift their voices about an old rugged cross. What a blessing it was for me to both participate in that, but also to hear you all singing it with all of your hearts and to be reminded what a blessing it is to pastor such a people. God's doing some great stuff around here, isn't he? Uh, God is moving in incredible ways. I am excited about this. I also tremble a bit as I consider that God never uses a body of believers like this in great and mighty ways without taking them through some rather turbulent waters. And while I can't predict what that might look like in the future, I can tell you with all of the ways that God is making a difference through this congregation, I can guarantee you that the enemy is watching and that he doesn't much appreciate what is happening and that he is coming for some of you and for me. And so we need to beware, but not afraid. We need to be alert, but not discouraged, focused on the task that is before us. It is very possible he may come after somebody's health. He might come after somebody's family. He may come after our unity as a body through dissension and misdirection. I don't know what his scheme is going to be, but I can tell you this. If we will keep our eyes on the ball and continue to move forward, he has already lost. And so as we continue to move forward, I just, I just want to share that with you, just to be spiritually hypersensitive to where God is at work and to where our enemy, our common enemy, may distract us as we move ahead. That battle is most assuredly coming. But that old rugged cross gives us a guarantee. And that guarantee was actually sung in an earlier song. This is not the end. Even when you're in the struggles, even when you're in the throes of it, this is not the end. Uh, last week, I was in Ocean City, Maryland for a conference sponsored by a network that our church belongs to of over 560 churches. And I had the privilege of being able to speak at a couple of events there, do a couple of podcasts. And in the midst of all that, I met a colleague uh, for the first time that I'd communicated with via social media, text message, that sort of thing, a man by the name of Mark Clifton. You wouldn't have any reason to know who Mark is, except that he is one of our missionaries, and his job is to go to churches and seek to revitalize them. And as you can imagine, there's great need for that all across North America. And Mark preached what I believe is one of the most powerful sermons I've heard this year, this past Sunday night. And this preacher walked away with an, with an intent to repent of something. I have not been nearly thankful enough for the people in front of me. And I just want you to know that I love you. I haven't said that enough. And I am so excited about what God has for us as we move ahead together. Um, you are dear to my heart. And my prayer is that you will not just feel that, but even more so the, the, the arms of Jesus as we move forward together. And today we're in week two of a brand new series that we started last week called Who's Your One? And we're in this series because we want other people. In fact, we want as many people as possible to sense that love. And so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5 today, the text that Pastor Dave read for us at the outset of our worship time together. I don't think there's probably anything more frustrating to a leader of any kind, whether it's a pastor, a, a leader in business, uh, a leader in the military, whatever. If you're a leader, you probably understand what I'm about to say. There's nothing or few things that are as frustrating as the peanut gallery. You know what I'm talking about? People that sit in the, in the cheap seats and they throw peanuts. They eat peanuts and they throw them, but there's not a, really a lot of, uh, what shall we say, participation. There's not a lot of skin in the game. They sit up in the balcony and they critique everything that's going on, but there's not a lot of just wholehearted participation in what's actually happening in the arena. 
three years ago, we had the opportunity to bring Joe Gibbs to the Panhandle area and working with a number of other churches. We had a couple of thousand people gathered for a men's meeting at the Ransom Civic Center. And when Coach Gibbs got up to speak, this is the first thing he said, recognizing that he was in the outskirts of the Metro DC area. And there were probably a lot of people in front of him that donned the, the, the maroon and the gold every single Sunday, most of the time without hope, but I get what you're saying. All right. We got, we got those fans and he stood up and he looked at all of us and he said, I want to just say, I forgive you. And everybody's wondering what in the world would he say something like that for? He said, I forgive you because I know many years ago when I was on the sidelines with all the pressure of having to make a split second decision about which receiver to send in and which play to call and which defensive maneuver we were going to use. And there I was. And sometimes I would make one of those split second decisions and it, it would be wrong. And we would lose yardage. Sometimes we would lose the game. And there you were in your easy chair watching your 55-inch television screen with 10 minutes or more to be able to pick apart what I had less than a half a second to decide on. And you came to the brilliant conclusion that Coach Gibbs is an idiot. And I just want you to know you're forgiven for that. All right? That, that's a little bit of what it feels like. My wife and I were actually at a Shepherd game. Uh, we went been to a couple this year, but last season we were at this one game and there was a guy two rows in front of us. And it was just one of those games where our beloved Rams just were not having a good day. Penalties and fumbles and the like. It was just going to, you have a game like that. Almost every team has a game like that at least once a year and they struggle and they were losing that day. And about midway through the first quarter, it became aggravating to a guy sitting about two um, two, two rows in front of us. And so he stood up and started yelling and we were actually like, he's yelling. Like we weren't like on the first two rows. We were a little bit back. The players on the sideline could hear him. So, cause that's not distracting at all. Right. I mean, we're losing. So the thing I'm going to do to solve it is distract the players. That's brilliant. Right. And so he starts yelling at the coaches for the plays they should have called. He starts yelling at the players for the blocks that they missed by midway through the third quarter. He had a, a woman and some small ones with him that I could only assume were his wife and his children. They were no longer sitting next to him. They were sitting six rows behind us. You got to ask yourself, what am I doing wrong when your own family's not standing with you, right? And so my wife and I were just kind of laughing about this and we were trying to keep it quiet, but apparently the, our seatmates right next to us heard a little bit of what we were talking about. And he just leaned over to me and he says, he's here every game and he does this every game criticize and yell and scream and get angry. And here's the thing. He's never played a snap in his life. And I've discovered that's usually the case, isn't it? Here's, what, here's something else I've discovered. Within the Western church, there's a lot of people, good people. They're not quite, they, they don't have quite the, the horrible attitude that this guy has had. But, but nonetheless, they're, they're in the peanut gallery. They do a lot of, observation, a lot of critique, but there's very, very little skin in the game. And one of the things I want us to, to understand from the story that Pastor David read a little bit earlier in our worship time together is that you may not recognize or understand that you have a role to play if that is you. It's if you either don't recognize it or you refuse to play it, but everybody here in front of me today who calls Jesus Lord has a role to play. Let me give you just one really simple example. How many of you are excited about Thanksgiving? You ready for that? You ready for the turkey and the ham? I'm a ham guy more than the turkey guy, but if some of you, whatever, right? Mashed potatoes, pecan pie on top of cheesecake. It's going to be a great day. Here's another question. How many of you, um, you've already put up Christmas decorations. You've got Spotify or Apple Music locked in on holiday music, like since October. Yeah, there's some hands going up. You're freaks, all of you. You're, you're going through a lot of preparation. Let me ask you this question, okay? And I don't want to guilt you into anything, but I do want you to be very introspective over the next several moments. How many of you... In the midst of all that preparation and the gift wrapping and the putting up of the tree and making sure the ornament's in the right place and you and your spouse are getting together deciding which in-laws you're going to tick off this year because you can't be in two places at once. How many of you have factored into that some intentionality involving getting people 
to the Jesus that we always talk about being the reason for the season? How many of you have factored that in? Did you know that statistically there are two times during the year, Christmas being one of them, when people who would not otherwise think of darkening the doors of a place like this would actually come if they were invited? So let me just ask you, how intentional are you being? How intentional? Because here's the reason. I, I know some of you in front of me, as well as those that were at the 9 o'clock, are here and faithful because somebody else in the midst of everything they were factoring in factored you into their holiday plans. And they invited you. There's a lot. There's some people in front of me right now. You used to be those CEO people. You know what that means? Christmas and Easter only. And now you're some of our most faithful team members. And you are in and you call Jesus Lord, and your life has been transformed, and the only reason it happened is because somebody else carefully planned and passionately prayed and intentionally scheduled and brought you to Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. You have a role in that, every single one of you. How do you do that? Well, this morning I want us to draw some inspiration from these men who carried this paralytic and found a way in the face of multiple obstacles to get that guy to Jesus. Now the event and the occasion of this is in the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. He's traveling around from place to place. He's already preached a good bit. There's been some healing already. And in this place, like in many others, he encounters the opposition of the Pharisees and some religious leaders in this area. And like nearly every other encounter, they ask as they do in verse 21, who is this? Who does this guy think he is for giving sins and making the declarations? And by the way, that is exactly the right question to ask. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked that question of his own disciples. Who do, the, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And then ultimately that was followed up by this question. Who do you say that I am? There's coming a time in the life of every individual where they're going to have to make a decision. They're going to have to stand in the place. They're going to have to consider this man Jesus and all of his claims. And they're going to have to answer that question. Who is Jesus. This is not perhaps, this is definitely the most eternally critical question anyone will ever answer in their entire lives. And so here's the, here's the thing I want to put in front of you this morning. For those of you who have already said you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you've already declared him to be Lord. What are you doing? What obstacles do you need to overcome in order to get your neighbors, your family, your friends, your spouse perhaps, your children, your parents, how are you getting them to that question? Because if they don't get to that question in this life, there's not an opportunity in the next one. How do you get them to the question, who is Jesus? Let me tell you four qualities that rise up out of this story, things that you need, that I need, if we're actually going to play that role. You need a mission, you need an expectation, you need determination, and then you need God's vision. Let's take these in that order, beginning with the first one. You need a mission. Look at verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. This is what they've decided to do. And this is what they've decided to do together. You know, there, there are, you know, hundreds of people that are on our campus every weekend, which means there are thousands of opinions. Amen? We all got different personalities, we all, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all need to be who we are, but collectively, if we're going to have a mission, we can only have one, right? There, there's actually a history here at Covenant. We've been very honest about that, where we had multiple missions, which means we weren't accomplishing any of them very well. Driven by agendas, driven by personalities, we have just about, pray for us, put that culture to death and are beginning to move forward as one body. And I, I'm seeing God do some incredible stuff as a result of that. But a good, clear mission that is enforced is necessary, isn't it, for any organization to move forward. We know this in the, even in the business world. If, you've got, uh, if you're part of a healthy company, they have a mission statement, don't they? And it's not just a brass plaque on the wall that doesn't mean anything. It is clear and it is enforced. That means as an employee, if you begin to venture in your job outside the scope of that mission statement and you've got a healthy boss, what does he do? What does she do? She reels you back in. And what happens if you refuse to be reeled back in? She cuts the line. Okay, we'll let you swim in whatever river you want, but you won't be here anymore. That's not because those organizations are mean. It's because they're healthy. 
and they have a mission, and that mission has parameters, and they're moving forward together. We understand this from the corporate world. Instagram, by the way, has a mission that many of you are going to fulfill this coming Thanksgiving. You want to hear it? This is Instagram's mission, to capture and share the world's moments. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's also clear. And so everything in that company, their payroll, the way they aim their budget and their other resources is aimed at that, uh, that mission. We want to capture the world's moments. And on Thanksgiving Day, so many of you are going to be executing Instagram's central mission. You don't even realize you're doing it. Let's contrast that with another social media outlet, Facebook. You know what Facebook mission is? Anybody? Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. Here's the conclusion. The purpose of Facebook is for grandparents to keep up with their grandchildren. That's what it's become to a large, uh, to a large extent. And to the grandparents in the room, let me give you a clue. Your grandkids aren't on Facebook anymore. You might want to gravitate over to Instagram, right? Because that's where they are. If you don't have a clear mission, eventually it just becomes opaque. It becomes a blur and you're not accomplishing anything. Did you know that Covenant Church has a mission statement? It's plastered all over the wall. Go out there in the foyer, look at it right over the top of the information desk when you get uh, when you get done today. It says, we are in the business of growing passionate followers of Jesus who serve all people. And every single one of those words predates me coming as your pastor. And those words are highly intentional. And so we need to ask, what, what's one of the primary things? If we're going to follow Jesus and then create other followers of Jesus, what is it that Jesus wants to do? What was his mission? Look at these words from Luke 19.10. It's pretty simple. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now watch this. After saying that and, and giving some other sermons and speeches and healing some people and then going through an unjust trial and then being crucified and then being raised from the dead, Jesus comes back post-resurrection and with that mission in view says this to his disciples, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. My mission to seek and to save the lost is now your mission to seek and to save the lost. So let me ask you, what drives you? Think about that for a minute. This is going to be an introspective message. What pushes you? What's that thing that you don't need an alarm clock for in order to get out of bed? What is it? Is it another rung up on the ladder? Is it better pay? Is it another job? Is it good retirement benefits? Is it an inheritance to pass down for your children? Listen, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And there's nothing wrong with being motivated by that. There's not. But those things, if you follow Jesus, are not the main thing. If we follow Jesus, and Jesus says that we're sent just as he is sent, and Jesus defines his mission as seeking and saving the lost, then at the top of our list is seeking and saving the lost. That's not complicated, is it, brothers and sisters? That's our job. That's our role. You know, I think the Western church, by and large, has lost that mission. And so the best we can do in many areas and corners of Christendom, is compete with other churches for the same 20% of the population. And you know what happens when we do that? That 20% gets smaller and smaller every single year. That's not an advance of the kingdom. That's not extending the mission of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need a mission that involves people in our lives whose eternal destiny doesn't just get us up without an alarm clock, but doesn't let us sleep at night. That we are obsessed with the eternal destiny of those who are still separated from God. People for whom the prospect of that eternal separation drives us not just to tears, but to action. You need a mission, and so do I. But now here's the other thing. You can have a mission and, and not have any hope of accomplishing it, can't you? Like me, I can have a mission to play for the NBA. Not going to happen. I'm an overweight, middle-aged middle dude with a two-inch vertical. I ain't ever playing for the NBA. Right, And so you, if you just have that mission without understanding the empowerment that Jesus has given you, it's going to drive you to despondency and to despair. That's why you don't just need a mission, you need an expectation. Because see, the power for this isn't in your eloquence or your ability or your education. It's in the fact that Jesus will do more than you could possibly fathom. Look at verse 20 of Luke chapter 5. And seeing their faith, he said, man, to the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven you. 
They go through all this trouble that we're going to describe in a moment, fairly elaborate things that they did in order to get their friend to Jesus, and they did it because they expected something. Because covenant family, you don't take the kind of risks these men are willing to take unless you believe something great is going to happen. See, we, we all have moments where we're just going to lower the bar, don't we? Like when you have to call the cable company. Or when you go to the emergency room and there's a line and it's filled with people. You ever done that? How many of you have ever had that thought sitting in the emergency room in the waiting room? Like, maybe, maybe, if, I, maybe if I fake chest pains, I can circumvent the system. Yeah, they've already, they've already figured that out. You, you say chest pains, you know what they're going to do? They're going to take you to a room, smack an EKG on you, charge you a thousand bucks, send you right back to the waiting room. They figured that one out. You ain't got no chest pains. Go back where you came from. We'll see you in 17 and a half hours. Right? The Department of Motor Vehicles. What a wonderful place. Right? Every time you go into a place like that, what do you expect? Yeah, a line, delays. It's like, you just, why are you grumpy when you start to go into places like that? Because, because your expectations have been set for you by precedent. Now, I want you to contrast that attitude with what Jesus recognizes in these men. It is because of their faith that something better is going to happen. And let me tell you something, covenant family. Everywhere from Genesis to the maps that God or Jesus witnesses that kind of faith in Scripture, God does powerful things in response to that faith. You see, I, th I think that our problem is far too often that our faith in what Jesus is capable of doing is about as expectant as our faith in the Department of Motor Vehicles. And, and I don't know why we think like that. I, I'm as tempted as anybody to think like that. I don't know why we think like that. Because Jesus has such a far better track record than that. And these men, they'd already heard his powerful message in the synagogue. They'd heard if they weren't there for themselves to see how he had already cleansed the leper. And you and me, we've heard lots more stories over the last 2,000 years, haven't we, about what Jesus can do. So why do we doubt? Why is it that our, our low expectations of what Jesus is capable of doing, why does that happen to us? And I have to admit to you, I don't even know why that is. I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful. I know that when I fall for it, I need to repent of it and get out of it. But there's times, I'll tell you, you look back on things God does and you go, I was just an idiot. Why did I think that? Take me back 18 months when we had a debt that I had no idea how it was going to get paid off. These are the things I don't share with you publicly until after it's over and God makes a fool out of me. And then I'll be glad to share it with you. And I'm like, I don't know how we pull out of this dive. I absolutely have no idea. And the thing is, other, other churches, not just in this area, but all across the Mid-Atlantic, they, they are aware of what God is doing in covenant and through covenant. And so when I was in Ocean City last week, I must have had a dozen people stop and ask me to talk to them about what God is doing through you fine people. Tell me what God's doing through your people, man. I'm hearing some awesome stuff is happening out there. And I got to share a lot of awesome stuff. And in the middle of most of those conversations, they're like, well, what did you do exactly? Like, how'd you get them there? How did you? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not doing anything differently now than I was doing 18 months ago. So what happened? I mean, I'd love to write a book on that. It, I would rival Rick Warren in sales. I could retire. It would be great. But I can't, not unless I lie, because I don't know. Here's what I do know. God is doing something among us. God is stirring among his people. God wants to do some great things among the people of covenant, and he's proven it by the things he's already doing and has done. That's what I know. That's what I can bear witness to. So I need to have a higher expectation, don't I, than I had 18 months ago. But even more importantly than something as insignificant as a, as a building debt, we're debt-free now by God's grace, and I'm thankful for that, is, is what I believe God can do with a soul. I'll take you back 20 years to a, a fellow named Rodney. He was a construction worker, had a mouth on him that would make a sailor blush. He was a fighter and a drinker and just a hard-driving guy. And he would come with his wife, and he would sit right on the back row with all the Baptists. Right, That's where he was. And I'm thinking to myself, it's just not like, I, I didn't even verbalize it. You're just like, oh, he's here again. Huh. Oh, well. One Sunday morning, message has been shared. 
Musicians are on stage. It's an opportunity to respond. I'm standing down at the front. I look up. I see Rodney rise and step out into the aisle. You want to know what was on this preacher's mind? Now, why has he got to come down here? There's a bathroom back there. He could go to the bathroom. Why has he got to go to the bathroom behind the stage and interrupt everything? That, that, that's what I was thinking. He comes on down the aisle. He gets about three rows from the front. I'm not even making this up. And he just, he, he starts like, like, I'm like, oh man, he's been drinking again. Look at that. He can't even, <laughs> he can't even walk straight. And then he does this and just kind of goes to his knees. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's having a heart attack. So I, that's what I'm thinking until I got to him and grabbed his shoulders. And I said, Rodney, you all right, man? And he looks up at me and he says, I need Jesus. Okay, Lord, I'm an idiot. Okay. Low expectations when it comes to what God is capable of doing. Listen, if you had low expectations, you would not be the first. There's this man in Scripture called Saul of Tarsus who presided over the killing of the first deacon that we ever see named in Scripture. We see him preside over the martyrdom of a lot of people. By his own testimony in his letter to the Philippians, he says, this is all I wanted to do. I wanted to hunt these people down and jail them and kill them. Acts chapter 9 tells us that there's a disciple named Ananias who knows, is apparently aware, that Saul has actually been given a warrant for the arrest and, if necessary, the execution of the followers of the way. And he's on his way to Syria, and God speaks to Ananias, who no doubt is trying to hide his brothers and sisters so that they won't be discovered. And God says to Ananias, he's not on his way, he's already here. And Ananias is filled with fear. And God speaks to Ananias and says, I have converted him, and so I need you to go to the house of this individual where he's at because I had to strike him blind to get him, you know, to jerk a knot in his tail and get him where he needed to be, and I need you to go over there and lay hands on him and heal him. And you can hear Ananias almost go like, what? I mean, imagine God waking you up from a dream and saying, Osama bin Laden or somebody like that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're here, and here's where they are, and you need to go heal them because I've converted them. God, do you have any idea who this man is? And you can almost hear God say, you mean was, because I have changed him. Look at these words from Acts chapter 9, verse 15, for go. What, Lord, but Lord, you don't know he, go, why? For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let me ask you, if God can take a murderer and a terrorist and transform him such that he ends up ending his life having written half of what we call our New Testament, what in the world makes you think that the arm of the Lord is so short that he cannot save your husband or your child or your co-worker or anybody else that's on your mind and heart right now that's been keeping you up at night? God can and God will. And so we don't just need a mission to actually focus on this. We need an expectation that Jesus will do these things. The Lord can do that. Look at his promise in Jeremiah 31. I love this text, by the way. 600 years before the coming of Jesus, God gives his prophet a picture of a covenant that he will strike with his people. And he says the following, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever and for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. You know, that's what I prayed for all three of my children until I baptized the last one just this past December. That was my prayer. I don't have any other authority. I don't have any other power. I can't save them. I can't heal them. I can't help them. Their preacher daddy has zero authority to convert them. I can't do it. Only the Lord can do that. Only the Lord can do that. And, and we start thinking, well, what, it, what it's going to take is a really snappy children's ministry or some cool hip youth ministry. Or we need a gimmick. We need to give away some iPads. We need, listen, we, we can do all that. That's not wrong unless that's what you're depending on. 
What good is any of that going to do when the same prophet tells us that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked? How are you going to change that? How am I going to have any faith that my children are going to be able to exercise the will? I, how many of you have seen the will of your children? Yeah, it doesn't go to good places, does it? I got one hope. Lord Jesus, would you do that for Samuel, for Seth, for Abigail? Would you save my children? And you stay on your knees and you pray in the quietness of your own closet. And you pray when you go to bed at night. And you pray when you rise up again for God to do something. And then you expect God to act. Who's your one? Who's that person? Right now, there was somebody in your mind. There's a, there's a first name right there. Let me tell you, when if and when God decides it is time, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that's going to stop him from arresting all of their being and bringing them to Jesus. You've just got to be faithful in your mission. You need a mission. You need faith. You need faith. Thirdly, you need a mission, you need an expectation, you need determination. Let me tell you why that is. It's because you're going to encounter some obstacles. I mentioned that at the outset of this message. Satan does not like what's happening here. And so we can expect some trouble. If there's a church that's free from trouble and conflict, in all likelihood it is a church that is not accomplishing what Jesus put it in that place to accomplish. If everything's always rosy, always lovey-dovey, feels like Disney World, something's wrong. Because the enemy only attacks when he sees you as a threat. He only attacks when he sees you as a threat. And so you're going to need some determination in this. In fact, you're going to need precisely the kind of determination that we read about here in Luke chapter 5. Look at verse 19. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. You see what they did? They tore the roof off the place. Literally. You know why? Because a clear mission aligned with high expectations will produce this kind of determinative, radical obedience. How many, how many other people in the world do you think, other than these men, would have, would have picked that man up, you get him on the cot, you carry him all this way, and then you get to the house and you see a line of people from here to, the, to our exit doors? And you just go, I, this, this is too much trouble. We didn't know there was going to be this kind of crowd here. How many people do you think would have given up? Anybody in here like waiting in line? Anybody in here like pushing your way through? Like, I don't do that. I, I, I have literally put product back on the shelf at Walmart because I saw 28 registers and three cashiers. And I said, I'm not waiting in that. I don't wait. I just don't do it. I, if you want to do that, that's fine. There's no sin in it. I just don't, I don't like doing that. And so I, I give up easy and stuff like that, particularly if it's not something that's all that important to me anyway. I'll make this other confession to you. I'm not sure if I can keep my card as an evangelical pastor if I say this. I drive past Chick-fil-A for the same reason. And I love Chick-fil-A. And some of you are like, Pastor, we know it wraps around the building like 24-7, except for Sundays, of course. But but the, you get through it in a minute and a half. I don't know. It's the psychology of it. I see it and I don't, I don't want to wait. And so I read this story and I'm thinking, how many other men, what kind of men are these that they would have that determination? They wouldn't get there and see that there's a problem or that there's a barrier and just give up and go somewhere else, but that they would say, boys, let's get on the roof, let's tear some shingles off, let's peel some subroofing back like a sardine can, let's kick down a door, let's do whatever it takes to get this man to Jesus. That's what is called for here. I've got a determination. I'm not going to let things get in my way. But how many times do I do that? How many times do any of us do that? Because we allow little things to become big things. How often does that happen? It's an uncomfortable conversation to have with people. It, it is. They might say no, it is. They might laugh, yep. They might cut off the friendship. They could. If you do it in the right way, it's unlikely, but they could. It could, it could happen. I, I don't know what to say. Right after this service, 
brand new three circles class. You heard Pastor Chris talk about it. We opened it up because we're at the wazoo right now with people uh, becoming a part of this, and we're really excited about it. So we don't want anybody walking away thinking there's no room for me. We got room for you today. You can go learn how to talk about your faith. We're, we're excited about doing that for you. Listen to the level of Paul's determination in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, to the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He's like, are you going to get them all, Paul? Probably not. But I'm going to share the greatest story that's ever been told in all of human history. I get to do that. And I'm going to bust down every barrier that keeps me from doing that. I'm going to kick in every cultural or linguistic door that keeps me from doing that. I'm going to sink myself incarnationally like Jesus did with anybody that God puts me in proximity with. And I'm going to share this message with them. And you know what? Some of them are going to come to Jesus. That's not my responsibility. That should free you, by the way. God doesn't hold you responsible for the results, but you get to tell the story. Is there a better story on the planet? Is there a better story since the creation of humanity in all of history? Is there a greater story to tell? What are you more excited about than this? This is what God calls us to. And so there's a, a level of determination. Paul says, I'll break down any door for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in his blessings. So God's going to open a door, and then God, oftentimes in our spiritual walk, he's going to intentionally allow some stumbling blocks to be put, some hurdles to be put in our way, to see if we are faithful enough to him to do what is necessary, to have the determination to knock some of those things over. A little more than 10 years ago, I had this great opportunity uh, in, in the position that I held at that point, to be introduced to the Muslim community in the, in, in the greater Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area, I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what to do because um, I, I didn't know anything, really. I mean, the sum total at that point in my life of what I knew about Islam could be defined, uh, could be confined to three weeks of 16 weeks of a course in world religions that I took 20 years earlier in seminary. And, if, and there could be an imam friend of mine watching right now live, and, and they're probably saying the same thing I'm about to tell you. What that meant was I knew nothing about Islam. Three weeks? Are you kidding me? Anybody in here walk with Jesus for longer than 10 years? Yeah. Do you understand? Have you even scratched the surface of your own faith yet? Think you can really understand somebody else's in three weeks? Come on now. Don't be an idiot. That's where I was. I didn't know it. And so I had some godly men and women who came alongside me who kind of helped me understand how to engage that community. And the result of that is, is more than a decade later, some of my dearest friends now are imams from around the, the country and, and around the world. I've got Muslim friends all over the world. Some of them may be watching now. We're definitely going to have some of them this afternoon to come and join us for a One America event up in our great room. They've been strong supporters of our effort to combat addiction. I'm so incredibly grateful to them for their faithfulness in that. And I watch them, and two things come to my mind. The first is, is just an impression with their passionate pursuit of what they believe, particularly during their, their month of fasting. Because over the last three years, Ramadan's all, it's based on a lunar calendar, and so it doesn't happen at the same time every year. doesn't happen at the same time every year. happens according to the lunar calendar. For the last three years, it's happened when, thing, when, when it's been incredibly hot. And, and the thing you may not know about our Muslim friends is, is they don't just fast from food during the day, but also water water. A dear friend of ours told my wife, she said that it's hard to wash the dishes during the day because I just see the, the water coming out of the spigot. I just want to plunge my face into it. And I watch that passionate pursuit. Frankly, it, it doesn't, it, it looks so much more devoted than even so many people who call themselves Christians who live in the West. And I go, wow, what devotion. And here's the other thing I think about. Something else I've grown to in terms of how I view this. I watch that passionate devotion. I see them persevere through all that. And I've developed in the middle of all that a passion for them to truly know the God they're seeking. Like I didn't before. Like before it was just comparative religion. Like this is wrong and we're right. and that This is how it, you know we want to categorize and oversimplify everything. And now I'm at this point where I go, they are, they are, I think, with all their heart, they're seeking God. And so during Ramadan every month, and I tell them this, and they understand 
where I'm coming from, I'm, I'm praying for you to find him. They know, they know that I believe that the way they're going to find him is the same way I think everybody in the world will find him, which is through a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And that's what I pray for them. And they're not my projects. They're my friends. My friendship with them is not conditioned on whether they believe as I do. That shouldn't be the case. We work together on a lot of different things. But how can I call myself a friend to these people if I, believing what I do, don't seek to be present with them and to love with them and to the degree that they will listen, share with them the greatest story that's ever been told in the history of all humanity? How can I do that? How can I do that with my Jewish friends, with my Buddhist friends, with my atheist and agnostic friends? To say to them, we love you. We don't want you to feel pressure from us. That's not conversion anyway. That's actually called conquest. But we are praying for the Holy Spirit of God to reveal himself to you. How can you not share? How, how could I let the fact that sometimes that's an uncomfortable conversation keep me from having the conversation when I believe because the scriptures teach that eternity hangs in the balance? How could I not have that conversation? How could I wall myself off from such people? And you know what my biggest resistance has been? It may not surprise some of you over these last 10 years. It hasn't been my Muslim friends, or my Jewish friends. I annoy them sometimes, um, but they've been very gracious to listen. It's Christians. It's Christians who are trapped in a cultural bubble who go, why are you inviting them? Why do you include them? Well, because Jesus died for them. That's why. I have discovered that in the West, there is a fake Christianity that is trapped in a bubble. And you know what this preacher is determined to do? Walk around with a needle in my pocket. I'm going to pop some freaking bubbles. Because that's what it's going to take to get people to Jesus. They don't want your 15-minute four spiritual laws. They want you to live with them and love them and know that you would die for them before you tell them that Jesus would? What barriers are in between you and a friend or a loved one or a, a co-worker or a family member coming to know Jesus? What obstacles have you allowed to derail you from the mission? What would it look like for you to dig a hole in a roof or to kick down a door? You need a mission, brothers and sisters. You need determination. You need an expectation, and then all of that has to be fueled by something bigger than you. Because I'm going to tell you something that surprise, may surprise some of you. It ain't about you. It's not. You need God's vision. And what's interesting about this story is these men, even with all their determination, they, they didn't have a vision as large of, as Jesus, and this is why they got way more than they bargained for. Look at verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. They know of Jesus as a healer, and so they they do everything they can. They bust down every barrier that's necessary in order to get their friend to the healer because they want him to walk again. But here's the thing. He doesn't just walk out walking. He walks out a new man. And before Jesus deals with the symptom, he deals with the sickness. Your sins are forgiven you. See, there's a reason that people can't walk. There's a reason that your pastor wears contact lenses, and it's probably got an appointment coming soon because I'm having a hard time seeing now. There's a reason we forget things. There's a reason that we have heart disease and diabetes and all kinds of other things. It is because we live in a broken world. Now, that's not to say that if you've got something wrong with you or that if you're chronically ill, that it's directly correlated to something you did as if God is punishing you for something. That is not true. And if, by the way, if any preacher tells you that that's true, he's a liar. All right? That's not true. But here's what is true. You live in a broken world. And so do I. You live in a world that is under the, the crushing weight of the sin curse. And in that world, some of us are going to have some physical problems that directly correlate to the fall. And so before Jesus deals with the symptom of allowing this man to be raised and to walk out of there, he's going to deal with what's really wrong. 
Because to do otherwise is like a doctor who gives you drugs that mask the symptoms of what's wrong with you, but never prescribes a cure. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is interested in the sickness as well as the symptoms. And so he says, your sins are forgiven you. And then when the religious leaders question his authority, he goes, you know, that's exactly the right question. Do I have authority to forgive sins? Let me show you that I do. Rise. And take up your bed and walk. That's God's vision. See, in every place in the scriptures where men had an expectation of what God would do, God does something better. Look at these words of Paul from Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know what this means, covenant family? It means you set your expectations as high as you want. Jesus will exceed them. Because your vision is limited compared to his What is it today that you think Jesus should do for you or can do for you? What do you believe today that Jesus can do for your friend? What do you believe that Jesus can do for our church? What Jesus is actually doing is far greater than you could possibly fathom. C.S. Lewis described this phenomenon within our own hearts as, as with the analogy of children making mud pies at the edge of a beach while our father offers us a holiday at sea. See, the best the Western church can come up with is gimmicks. And again, we're fine. We've given away stuff before. I'm fine with that. I think it's fine. That's not the power of God. That stuff, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, accomplishes nothing. And yet, we try to, let's let's turn down the lights. Let's set the mood. Let's maybe some fog machines. Maybe let's just, let's get everything. Let's gin up the Holy Spirit like the Holy Spirit's going to respond to your foolishness. You really think he's going to give you credit for that? This is the Holy Spirit we're talking about. He moves where he wills. He don't need none of that to do what he wills. I mean, none of it. But that's what we try to do, right? What do we want to do? I hear it in creative teams all the time. We've got a great creative team here. They do wonderful work. I'm not opposed to it. But if the sum total of what we're trying to do is create experiences so that we can fill seats, I mean, if that's all you're looking for, you don't need to be here. You don't need to go to any church. Go home today, download the new Disney Plus app. They'll give you that. Far better than a Christian church will. If that's all you're looking for is a great experience, hair stand up on the back of your neck, man. let's have it. Let's talk about how God showed up because we were able to gin up enough emotion. Really? The world can do a lot better job of that than the church can. The best we can come up with is some fake replication of that that just costs more and doesn't work as well. Disney's got us beat on that one. That's okay. Because we got something better. If we can lay that down, just stop with some of the nonsense. How about instead, we start believing that today's addicts are tomorrow's pastors? How about instead we start believing that today's alcoholics are tomorrow's deacons? How about we start believing that a decade from now, people are going to look back at the tri-state area and the panhandle, and they're going to see Jesus at work through his Holy Spirit, through his covenant family, in doing phenomenal transformative things, and they will see a place that looks very different than they do than they did 10 years earlier. And their only conclusion, based upon who God used, is there's a God in Shepherdstown. How about we have that dream? Because Jesus wants to exceed every expectation we have. What is it that we're settling for that Jesus wants to outdo? Let's come together around that. Don't settle for the mundane when the Lord wants to do the miraculous through you. Ask God to do what only He can do as we approach this holiday season. Who's your one? Who's that individual? What's their, what's their first name? What role is God calling you to play in removing every barrier, tearing off every roof, breaking down every door to get them to Jesus? Or maybe you are that paralytic this morning. Maybe we've been looking at the story together and 
Perhaps even for the first time, you're looking at this and going, I, I am that paralytic. Pastor, I'm that guy. I've got friends sitting around me right now, and that's why they brought me here. My wife brought me here. I didn't want to come. There's heel marks in the parking lot, Pastor. I, I didn't want to be here. But I now know that I am that guy, and I need Jesus and you need to know, yep, that's exactly what your loved one did. That's exactly what your children did. That's exactly what your parents have done. They've got you here because they want you to know Jesus. That although your sins have separated you from God, there is one who came and lived on your behalf. His life is the only victory you'll ever have. You can accomplish none on your own. His life alone and his death paid the penalty for your sin, and then he rose from the dead so that you not only get fulfillment in this life, you get eternity in the next one. Your loved one brought you here to hear that message this morning. And you can hear Jesus if you would like. If you would simply reach out, turn from your sins, put your faith in him, you can hear Jesus say to you the same thing that he did, said to that paralytic. Not merely arise and take up your mat and walk, but the more important thing that he could say to anybody, your sins are forgiven. Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this body of believers and I thank you for where we are headed. And Father, I just pray that as we continue to unite and move forward, that you would give us a passion for those who are far from you, for those who are yet to know you. Lord, may we have a renewed confidence, not in our own abilities or talents or any programs or agendas on our part, but Father, that we would believe simply that your arm is not too short to save. And Father, we pray that in the midst of that, you would demonstrate that to be true. Lord, there are people in front of me right now who have spouses, children, parents, co-workers, family members who are breaking their heart. And Father, some of them may, may have even pressed that memory down because it's just emotionally tough to think about that individual. Lord, I pray you would rise that up within their soul, not, not as a means of tormenting them, but of renewing their confidence in you and your ability to be able to save. And Father, we thank you that salvation is of the Lord. Your servant Job got it right. This is all about you. This is all to be credited to you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray this morning that you would save people in front of you. Those who may have realized for the first time that they're not really walking with you. Lord, may they turn from their sins and may they put their faith in you. Father, I pray for loved ones here that they would gain a new confidence, that they would continue to pray passionately and plan intentionally as we move toward this holiday season. And Father, would you show yourself mighty in the salvation of many souls. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.